0: Okay, here we go. New series. Are you ready? Good. Psalm 23, The Shepherd's Detox. The most famous psalm in the world. The words most frequently turned to by people of faith and none in times of stress and strain. A psalm that offers us God's response to the pressures of our lives. We find here God's antidote to the things that afflict us, God's cleansing from the poisons that intoxicate us, God's truth for the words that so often trouble us. A detox, not for the body, but for the soul. We find these words, words at least 2,500 years old, to be as relevant today to our lives, to our families, to our jobs, to our culture, as they have ever been. How is that so? Here are words so old, yet so bang up to date. Words that belong to an era long dead, yet they are so alive. Because they're God's words. And as Isaiah, one of the writers in the Bible, was to say, he said it's like this, the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God will stand forever. Here are words that have stood because they came from heaven. These are words that spring from that which is eternal. And in this toxic world that so often pollutes our souls, we would do well to let these words settle upon us, to shape us, to sort us, to soothe us, to sift us, to discover there is indeed from God, a detox for our souls. In this opening phrase that we'll look at this morning, the Good Shepherd, Psalm 23, verse 1, addresses the pollutant, the toxin of worry, and he tackles it straight on. And so this is where we begin. And if you're interested in the uh, other subjects that we'll be covering, and when, and so on, all the dates and this, that, and the other are in the grapevine and online and all of those kind of places. The Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. We all have worries, don't we? Finances, jobs, relationships, marriages, health, future, and so we could go on and on and on. As human beings, we are fantastic worriers. Did you realise that human beings are the only creatures in the universe that worry? Your dog doesn't start worrying that he's not getting on very well in life. And your cat does not worry that one day she will be sick. Human beings are the only creatures under heaven that worry. And we seem to love it, to relish it, to flourish at it. We even use worrying as a mark of maturity, a true sign of adulthood. We do. How many of you have said to your teenage children, you'd better start worrying about your future. You'd better start worrying about those exams. You'd better start worrying about where you're going to live. Their unworried, unhassled approach to life bothers us. It frustrates us. We can't wait until they grow up and worry just like we do. We excuse ourselves about worry too. It's not me, it's my circumstances. If other people were in the same situation as me, well, they'd be worrying too. It's not that I'm a worrier, it's just that I've got things to worry about. No, no. The first truth, to freedom, you know when truth hurts a little, this hurts a little, brace yourself, worry is more about us than about our circumstances. Imagine that the holiday that you've waited months for, maybe even years for, has finally arrived. All winter you've battled through the wind and the rain. You've kept yourself alive because you know that one day you'll be lying on a sun-soaked beach under an unbroken blue sky besides clear crystal water. This moment has kept you going day in, day out. You've got up in the dark, you've gone to the bus stop in the rain, you've come home in the dark. This has kept you going. Finally it arrives and you're there. The beach is picture postcard perfect. It's paradise. Every direction you look, the glory of God's creation just fills your gaze. The journey's been good. The hotel's fantastic. You've even managed to beat the odd German to a sunbed. Did I say that out loud? And you've just finished coating your body in amber solaire. And you lie back. You begin to feel the warmth of the sun caressing your body. It's perfect, pure, unadulterated bliss. You've arrived at your own unbridled utopia. All those days at the office, ah, I deserve it. And it lasts for 5.6 seconds. And suddenly unexpectedly from absolutely nowhere totally uninvited a worry pops into your mind you left the back door open what i left the back ah, i left the back door open and within 10 seconds you're thinking who can i ring because i left the back door open maybe i've been burgled already it's too late maybe i left the water on as well and i bet the kid next door has overfed the fish worry It's not about your circumstances. It's about you. We may summarise worry with three easy words. It's unhelpful. It's unhelpful because it never accomplishes anything. It doesn't solve anything. It's stewing without doing, as someone called it. It's like racing your car engine. A lot of noise, a lot of smoke, but you go nowhere. Worry's never solved a problem. Worry can't change the past, and it can't control the future. It only makes you miserable today. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, said Corrie Tembu. It empties today of its strength. It's unhelpful. It's unreasonable. It exaggerates your problems. It makes mountains out of molehills. It just makes problems seem bigger and bigger and bigger. The more you worry, the bigger it gets. And to worry about something you can't change is useless, isn't it? If you can't change it. To worry about something you can change is stupid. Just change it. Our worries are not as big as we think anyway. Worries have been likened to a dense fog. According to the Bureau of Standards, a dense fog covering about seven street blocks in a dense city centre to a depth of 100 feet is composed of something less than one glass of water. All seven blocks in fog, 100 feet, one glass of water. That's like your worry. It looks so thick, so dense, so impenetrable. It disorientates us, throws us off beam takes us and forces us to take a different direction but really when it all comes down to what it really is it's nothing or at best nothing much did you know that 40 percent of the things you worry about never happen and did you know that 30 percent of the things that you worry about have already happened maybe you've been so busy worrying you haven't noticed 12% 12% of things are about our bodies, uh, needlessly. I have pain in my head and suddenly it's all gone terribly wrong. I've got pain in my foot and, uh, and, and we panic. 10% of your worries are so petty you won't even mention them out loud. Which leaves 8%, which may be something, but are usually easily soft. And instinctively, we know it's true. Maybe you've heard the story of the executive, J. Arthur Rank, who decided that this worrying in life was so stressing him out, he had an ulcer and goodness knows what, I'm only going to worry on one day. He chose Wednesdays. I'm going to worry on Wednesdays. So every time he got a worry, something that made him really anxious, something that was getting his ulcer all going, he'd write it down, he'd stick it in his worry box, he said, I'll think about that on Wednesday." And what he discovered that when he got to Wednesday and he opened the box, imagine waking up on Wednesday morning, hey, it's a great day, it's my worry day. And he lifts off the lid and he looks inside and he's got these worries. And he said nearly every time, almost all of them had been resolved. What would it have helped had I worried? So it's unhelpful and it's unreasonable and worry is unhealthy. We know that, don't we? Your body wasn't made for worry. It's unnatural. When you worry, you get ulcers and backaches and headaches and insomnia uh, and allergies and irritable this, that and the other. Our bodies were not made to worry. Not to mention what it does to your soul. Worry stops you loving. And worry stops you giving. And worry stops you growing. It's self-absorbing, egocentric, debilitating, demoralising that sounds a death knell to our souls. The old English word for worry uh, is to strangle or to choke. And that's what worry does. It Strangles, it chokes the life out of us. How sad sometimes in my life and yours, the new life of the kingdom is in us, but our worries are squeezing it out. In this series I said that we'd look at uh, uh, a moment in the life of David who wrote this psalm to help us reflect and understand something of what he might be talking about and so this morning we're looking at that passage uh, that uh, Chris read to us some moments ago to help us understand so enter Goliath the perfect worry worker picture the scene The army of Israel is lined up on one side of a great valley and uh, the Philistines are lined up on another. I don't know how you imagine it, perhaps a little narrow ravine. It was uh, the valley of Elah, verse 2 tells us. It was about a mile wide. It was a great, big, huge canyon. And these two armies were lined up on either side. And between the slopes ran a little stream from which David would go and pick up his five stones. He only needed one, but he picks up five. And there was one Philistine who was a giant named Goliath. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor—a uh, a, a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five thousand shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was, javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed six hundred shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. You'll find looking at me a really good visual aid. And uh, for those of you listening online, the preacher today resembles something like Arnold Schwarzenegger, although a lot more intelligent. (laughs) He was massive, size 20 collar, 56-inch waist, his biceps bursting, thigh muscles rippling, and his loud, boastful shouts were belching across this mile-wide canyon that separated these armies. This day, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. Come, let us fight each other. Every word produced panic and fear in the Israelite camp. He was a worry machine par excellence. Every time they saw him, every time they heard his voice, panic rose within them. There was no one willing to fight Goliath. Give me a man. There was no man. Despite the king's offer, the king said, if there's anyone in this army who will fight Goliath, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. That was not too good an offer, you'll find out later in the story. But nevertheless, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. You can have all the riches of the kingdom. You can be exempt from tax for the rest of your life. But even that didn't persuade them. Goliath was their worry. And as worry does, he intimidated, even dominated them. We all know the roar of Goliath in our own lives. The booming sound of the things that that worry us. For 40 days, Goliath roared every morning and every night, says verse 16. And your worry does the same. As soon as you wake, you hear its roar. As you drift to sleep or lie awake, tossing things round in your mind, the words of your worry circle your valley. And just as these Israelites poked their head out of the tent every morning, and there he was. So your worry dominates so often your day. And it steals our joy, and it steals our energy, and it serves up fear. Day after day, week after week, Goliath gets bigger and bigger, and his roar louder and louder. can you notice, uh, 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 if you read it through carefully, you'll you'll see that when Goliath began, he was on the far side of the canyon. But he was building in his confidence. And as the story goes on through 1 chapter 17, Goliath is getting nearer. And at one stage he says he's already coming up the other side, towards the, the side that the Israelites were on. That's what your worry does. If you leave it, it gets bigger and bigger and it comes towards you. It seeks to overwhelm you. It will devour you unless you destroy it. David's a shepherd boy. Too young to be in the army, unskilled and untrained as a soldier. Too insignificant to be remembered by his father when an important prophet turns up and says, hey, tell me your sons. And Jesse needed to be reminded that he had a son called David out in the field. And this young, insignificant boy arrives at camp, sent by his father to take domestic supplies to his brother's. And he arrives just as Goliath is beginning his daily routine. And to cut a long story short, David was mad. Absolutely mad that Goliath was taunting these Israelites. David was incensed that this heathen was mocking their true God. And he said, almost instinctively, without a second thought, I'll go, leave it to me. They tried putting Saul's armour on him, but it was no use. So David took the only thing he knew, he took his shepherd's boy sling, and he went and collected five stones. He'd only need one. And then he slung this one single stone so fast that it could kill a lion. And it hit Goliath right between the eyes where there was no armour. The warrior machine was dead. Goliath had said, give me a man. In the end, it was just a young boy that finished him off. Now the important thing, I think, for you and for me, is how come this shepherd boy did what all those soldiers couldn't? And if Goliath is like my worry, can I learn to slay him, it, as effectively as David did? Well, I think the secret of David's success is summed up in the opening verse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. You see, the truth is, David didn't face Goliath with his sling. David faced Goliath with his God. You come against me, he said to the Philistine, with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. We must receive the Lord as our shepherd. We must receive the Lord as our shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd provides. A shepherd protects. A shepherd guides. A shepherd corrects. And the amazing thing is this, that God has promised in this life, here and now, to be your personal shepherd. To do for you those four things. If you'll trust him. If you'll let him. And if you do, the Bible says, if the Lord becomes your shepherd, you will have everything that you need. I shall not be in want. He says, I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll guide you. I'll correct you in the problems of your life. I'll correct you in the way that you're going. If you'll let me be your shepherd. You see, the secret for David was not the the discovery that the Lord is a shepherd. But the secret for his life was his discovery was his ability to say, the Lord is my shepherd, my protector, my provider, my deliverer, my guide. It's all covered. My God will meet all. It's a fantastically small and significant word, isn't it? My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a great word. All. It's all covered. When you take out an insurance policy, if you're like me, you will be anxious about the things that aren't covered because you know that the first claim that you have will almost certainly be regarding an area of the policy that is not covered. God says it's all covered. All covered. Worry is not only unhelpful, unreasonable, unhealthy, it's unnecessary if Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, says, hey, all covered. Every time we worry, we act like an atheist, someone who doesn't believe. Because in essence we're saying, God has not got that bit covered. God's not going to take care of that bit of my life. God's not going to work it out in his way, in his time. Worry is practical atheism. It says, I don't believe God will do what he says he will do. I'm not sure he's got it all wired. Don't know about you, but I find that a bit challenging, don't you? Let's just push it on a little bit further. Think again about this phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. We know it so well, so familiar to us. Listen to what it's saying. Get the drum, the Lord The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is, what does that mean? The Lord is my shepherd. Hear the text. It means something like this. The Lord can't be your shepherd until the shepherd is your Lord. Could it be that the areas of our lives where we worry are nothing more than the areas of our lives that we fail to bring under the lordship of Christ. Yes. As Barclay says, now there's a thought. If he is Lord, and today we might say boss, manager, CEO, chairman of the board, person who's on top, the one calling the shots. If he's the Lord, he's the one in control. And if worry is anything, worry is an issue of control. The root behind all of your worry and mine is a fear that you are not in control. Worry is always an attempt to control the uncontrollable. And if that's true, worry is assuming a responsibility that God never intended you to have. And it happens, doesn't it? Whenever you try to control the uncontrollable, Kids, economy, environment, future, health, you're going to worry. Worry assumes you are in charge. Which in itself is quite a scary thought. Worry assumes you're in charge. I heard a lovely story that makes the point. Fresh out of business school, a young man uh, sees a job... For an accountant. He applies for the job and he gets an interview. And he goes to be interviewed by a very stressed man who's running his own small business. This man says, I need someone with an accounting degree, but more importantly, I need somebody to do my worrying for me. Excuse me, said the accountant. Yes, I worry a lot, but I don't want to worry anymore about the finances. That will be your job. You will take the money worries off my back. I see, said the accountant. How much does it pay? 80,000 pounds. What? 80,000 pounds? How can a small struggling company like yours pay 80,000 pounds? That, said the owner, is your first worry. (laughs) Worry is assuming responsibility. Worry is assuming responsibility. God never meant for you to have. Worry assumes you're in charge. And you were never meant to be. And the God of heaven says, I would love to be your shepherd, but I need to be your Lord. The Lord cannot be my shepherd until the shepherd is my Lord. That's where many of us fail. We want to be in charge. You're not in charge. You weren't meant to be. And the one who is in charge says, I've got it covered. Have you received the Lord as your shepherd? what Helen was challenging us with. question is not, do you think you're a Christian, or are you in church, or are you doing the stuff? Have you received the shepherd as your Lord? Firstly, receive the Lord as our shepherd. Secondly, and there's only two points, steady, only two points, refocus. We must refocus on God and his ways. That's what David did. David was God-focused. Just as he was about to go to fight, everyone's talking about Goliath. He's really big, Goliath. No one's, uh, he's really big, David. No one's ever beaten him, David. You'll need Saul's armour, David. Where are their thoughts? Their thoughts are on Goliath. What's David thinking about? Verse 17, sorry, verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David's not thinking about go- Goliath. He's thinking about God. Everyone, though, is so Goliath obsessed in this chapter, verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. You, like them, know your Goliath. You know your worry well. You've seen it, you've heard it. But I ask you this morning is it all you have seen? Everyone's discussing Goliath. And maybe your Goliath dominates all your discussions too. But look what David says, his very first words in this story, in fact in the whole of the Bible. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David sees Goliath, but he sees God more. He sees Goliath... This is not some kind of claptrap you hear sometimes about your worries are nothing and your problems will all disappear. Ha, what club's that? He sees the reality. It's not that he doesn't see Goliath, but he sees God more. The soldiers don't mention God. The brothers don't mention God. But David takes one step onto this stage and his first words, he's focused on God. He does the same before King Saul. No chit-chat about the battle or questions about his odds. Just this God-birth announcement in Saul's presence. Again, verse 37. He says to the king, The Lord who delivered me will deliver me again from the hand of this Philistine. Even as he faces Goliath, who mocks and taunts him, I wanted a man, they're sending me only a boy. I'll be home before coffee time. Just as David sees all that and is hearing all that Goliath is saying, David refuses, verse 45, to take his focus off God. He never ever shifts his focus for nobody, for nobody. Not for King Saul or for Goliath. Verse 45, 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I am coming in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Notice the plural, armies of Israel. There was only one army, but David by faith is seeing the array of heavenly armies that's on the king of heaven's side. All of God's armies are with me as I come against you and I can see them clearly. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I'll strike you down, cut off your head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. You could have cheered and applauded and stuff, but I guess it's not your style. A new subplot's emerging here. Do you see it? You see, you think the plot is David versus Goliath, but it's not. The plot, the main plot actually, perhaps not a subplot, the main plot of the story is God-focused versus giant-focused. A whole army of giant-focused people did nothing. One God-focused young lad made all the difference. You see, all eyes except David's are on the brutal, hate-breathing hulk. All compasses except David's are set on the pole star of the Philistine. All journals but David, describe day after day in the land of the giant. The people, they know his taunts, they know his demands, they know his size. They've majored on Goliath, and for as long as they majored on Goliath, they would live in fear and in defeat. And the same is true for you and for me. If you major on your giants, they'll just get bigger and taller and stronger and more demanding. And your ability to slay them will diminish by the minute. But David majored on God. He never asked about Goliath. Do you notice that? He never sized it up. He didn't ask Goliath's skill. He didn't ask about Goliath's age or social standing, his battle record or his IQ. He doesn't ask the weight of that spear or the size of the shield. He doesn't inquire about the skull and crossbones on Goliath's shoulder. Nine times, though, in this short chapter, he talks about his God, who is Abel. And there are two bleak references, oblique references from his mouth about the Philistine. Can I ask you? Are you like that? Are you four times more likely to mention God's strength than you are your worry? That's what David models in this chapter. Focuses on God. King Saul, forget it. I'm focused on God. Goliath, forget it. I'm focused on his older brother came offering taunts. Older brothers can be cruel sometimes, can't they? And the older brother, we didn't read it, but you can read it when you get home. Got in there and tried to stir things up. David's, like, oh, focus, man. Four times more likely then. Talk about God's strength and your worry. That's how giants fall. So Caesar Max Lucado phrase, focus on giants, you stumble, focus on God, your giants tumble. He saw the giant, don't misunderstand me. It's not about saying the giant didn't exist, or it wasn't very important, or it wasn't very big. This giant was, hey, nine feet tall, he was just a little boy. He saw the giant, but he saw his God. And with a God-saturated soul, he rushed towards his giant. And you could say, terrible joke is coming, get ready. You could say, he got ahead of his giant. Get it? Head? You got a Head, head, yeah? When was the last time you got ahead of your giant? When was the last time loaded with God saturating, uh, glory filling your heart and your mind, did you take your God-given sling and take one shot at your worry? I don't know how big your giants are. Well, I do, actually. And I know that many of us sitting here have got giants that feel more than nine feet tall. But even if I don't know how big your giants are, I know how big our God is. And your giants, however big, are nothing, are they, compared to him? We find that hard to believe, don't we, sometimes, in reality, in daily speak. Bigger than him. And that takes us right back to Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. See, it's in capitals, isn't it? Did I do that? No. Your Bible does it. Do you notice that? Every now and again, the Lord is in capitals. Is it because the NIV thought, well, God's really important, we better emphasise him? No. If you look at the front of your NIV, the one in the pew will be the same, your Bibles at home will be the same. A very common convention to use capitals for the word Lord when the original text had the name Yahweh, the Hebrew name Yahweh. For God, the name so holy that no one would speak it out aloud except the high priest. The name so other that when the scriptures were read, it would be replaced by another word or an abbreviation. A word so sacred that they feared even to write it in full. Whenever you see the Lord in capitals, it's this, Yahweh. So when you see the word Lord here, it's a reminder that we're talking about the unchanging, uncaused, uncaged, ungoverned God, the one behind, above, and beyond all things. God so awesome, so holy, so other, that we might hardly dare mention his name. This is Yahweh who rules both the day and the night. This is Yahweh who does not change, who always is, who was uncaused. No one breathed life into him. No one sired him. No one gave birth to him. No one caused him. No act brought him forth. This is Yahweh, the one who creates but was never created. The one who makes but was never made. The one who causes but was himself never caused. No wonder the psalmist said, the mountains before they were born, you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't check the weather. He created it. He doesn't defy gravity. He made it. He's the one without limit, the one without end, the one of all place, the one of all time. No act brought him forth, therefore no act can take him out. Who needs, hey, a God on a shelf, or God in a box or in a bottle? Who needs a God made of statues of wood or clay or bronze? We need a God who can still storms, a God who can defeat death, a God who holds life, my life, in the strong grip of his hands. We need a God who can place a hundred billion stars in our galaxy and then place a hundred billion galaxies in our universe. We need a God who can take two-fifths of clay and of flesh, sorry, 2 fists of flesh, and turn them into 75 to 100 billion nerve cells, with each of those nerve cells having over 10,000 connections to other cells, and to take those two fists of flesh with all those nerves and cells and put it in a skull and call it a brain. We need a God like that, don't you think? Wouldn't that be cool? God like that? Who is so numbingly mighty, yet can come in the softness of the night and whose touch can be as tender as healing balm. We need Yahweh. And according to David, we have one. The Lord is my shepherd.